Welcome to episode 63 of the Fertility Podcast. My name's Natalie, I'm your host, and I haven't been introducing myself of late, so uh, if you've just joined the podcast, welcome. Just a little bit of background about me. I started this podcast having had successful fertility treatments. My background is in radio and I love all things audio and I love how hearing something is just so much more personal than reading something. I now have a 22-month old and I've continued for the last two years making this podcast and I hope if you've found that your route to parenthood isn't as straightforward as you'd hope that this podcast is a resource that you can revisit and it will give you a little bit of solace that you are not on your own with all of this. I speak to all sorts of people sharing their stories as well as experts within the fertility world. People who have had successful treatment, people that haven't. So it's hopefully an objective viewpoint for you to learn from, to share and also to to contact if you'd like to share your story. So this podcast is going out the week before Christmas. There's six days until Christmas 2016. I put a podcast out previous to this one, episode 62, talking to Jodie Day and Kelly De Silva about dealing with Christmas childless and I wanted to get the male viewpoint as well. So you're about to hear from Robin Hadley. Robin is someone who I've been in touch with on Twitter and I've been looking for a way to talk to him. And if you heard my previous episode talking to Jodie Day and Kelly De Silva about involuntary childlessness with regards to women, Robin has a PhD in gerontology and has done almost a decade of study into involuntary childlessness in men. So I was really keen to get Robin's view on how men are affected by this issue. So Robin, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for inviting me to chat. I, I'm, I'm really interested into how your circumstances led you to the research that you've been doing, whether you'd started the research and then that was where you were at with your life or whether where you found yourself in life led you to this type of study. Uh, it's where I found myself in life led me to the type of study. I was changing career and training as a counsellor and did a master's for the dissertation because it was counselling. You had to do something that had affected you. And I just remembered that in my 30s, I was very broody. I was quite desperate to be a, a dad. And I mentioned that to my supervisor and she said, well, I've never heard anything about that. Let's do that. And that's when I found out there was so little about the male desire for fatherhood out there. It seemed incredible to me. And so in that master's, I spoke to 10 men who wanted, who had wanted to be dads. And they age, age range from 30 to uh, upper 60s. Do you think that there is this issue in society of it? all being put on the women from from the start of your research does it just seem that nobody just assumes that men feel feel the same absolutely the assumption is uh, and it's maintained that women want to have children not all women do and men don't and that's actually um, recorded in some of the research as well because men have been difficult to get involved particularly uh infertility research men aren't as willing to participate as women and there's, there's lots of reason that one of that is a lot of the infertility treatment is around uh, the woman so there's a bonds built up between the staff and and the patient and so it's natural to for women to keep on wanting to help whereas actually through infertility uh, men have a, an ambivalent role they're sort of wanted, but in a very limited way. 
and quite often men will say, I feel like a, a sperm bank cash machine. I, I go in there to provide a sample and then I'm, I'm out of the way. Mm. So actually through the process, I'm isolated. Given that background, why would they want to be involved in research? Plus the research actually means getting involved with something that you may feel is that you're a failure or there's certainly negative aspects around that and you don't want to be pinned down to explaining what you're feeling, how you're reacting when men generally are socialised not to express themselves in that way internally but actually express themselves through actions. Often men after or during infertility treatment they go out a lot, they sort of go to a masculine stereotype of a player but what other narratives have they got to go on yeah. socialized not to be emotional and women you could argue would have been socialized to be emotional so with the research that you've done and it has been quite small groups as you've said predominantly due to men's unwillingness the, the feelings that these men have, have, have felt is things like depression which which you can you can understand and this kind of social isolation do you think that one thing that needs to change is this understanding in the whole childlessness that it affects both parties equally? Do you think it's fair to say it's equal or do you think society still assumes that the woman would suffer more because of the natural, you know, her, her body's longing rather than the emotional longing? I think it is equal, but I also think it changes across time and obviously for different people has different uh, impacts. There is a subtle narrative around women and reproduction and not one around men and reproduction to the same degree. So really needs to be expressed and challenged, actually. In infertility clinics, quite often the, the man is notes are put under the, the woman's name so he's sort of invisible structurally in that case. With the effects that you've discovered from men feeling depressed and the social isolation that they've felt from the unwillingness that the men that you've spoken to have, have, have already shown from the, the small samples of, of men that you've got to speak to and also the fact that you've spoken to men who maybe later in life are admitting that they are suffering from not having had a family. What more can be done to get men to talk about it? Do you think there needs to be a, a clear path of, of support available earlier on when men actually are faced with a life childless? It's really interesting about the unwillingness of men to speak. Actually, getting hold of the men is, is difficult, but getting them to speak is, is not difficult. Men want to talk. Actually, people want to talk about reproduction. When I'm stood at bus stops or, or whatever, people, when they find out my re about my research, they all talk. I, I've heard so many people's uh, reproductive life stories, and that's an honour that people do that. And that's I think, shows how interesting and how interested people are about reproduction and in a wider sense uh, of, uh, of life. And one of the things that men do say is, you know, I've never spoken to this to anybody else. And part of that, I think, is that they're not used to people listening to them. And again, I think that's a social issue, uh, is that men are quite uh, boxed as not interested in reproduction, uh, not in touch with their feelings, won't talk about it. And there are, there are some reasons for that, but it's not just black and white. It's, it's very nuanced. One of the, the things is that actually men are apprehensive about opening up for fear of humiliation. 
and that comes from being humiliate, humiliated or having the fear of humiliation earlier on in life. So it's embedded there. So I think there's something to do within society and schools about how young men and, and boys have their social intelligence improved or worked on. Mm. I think that would make a big difference in that. For, for men in later life, a family is so important because when it comes to care in later life, when we get old and very old and we need support, and a lot of support, official support, actually comes through the family. A uh, family is 80% carers for older people. And when we say family, we mean uh, adult children. But if you don't have adult children, what happens to you? Do you get put into homes earlier? There's some evidence for that. Do you stay in longer? There's some evidence for that. Is the agenda difference? There's some evidence that men are put into care and are in there longer than women and also at an earlier stage, childless men than childless women. Part of that is to do with social networks and social support. And again, that would seem to indicate something about men and forming relationships and the type of relationships they form. A lot of uh, men's relationships come through work. So once they retire, they lose quite a lot of social networks. Women tend to have social networks that last along the lifetime, that have a caravan effect that carry across time. And although they reduce as they get older, they're still quite intimate and larger than men. The childless are invisible in policy for older people in care and social health care. They really are an assumption that you will have children. Well, exactly. It's just not spoken about. And there seems a lot of assumptions when it comes to those who are childless, whether it be men or women. I'm really interested with the the link of the dealing with what is a complex bereavement, as you've written about. And I talked with Jodie Day about the effect on women. And it's as strong with men, this loss of the assumed father role, as, as you talk about it. One of the things that I was quite surprised about was this sense of outsiderness and the fear of being viewed as a paedophile being widely reported, which I think is devastating, but I can completely understand. Absolutely. I think for almost all men, a fear of being seen a paedophile, I think it grows as you grow older as well. And part of that is to do what's reported in the press, the misreporting of paedophilia, as it just being men who do it, and strange men. There was a, a chap I spoke to, and he was a, a gay chap, and he's he'd lost his partner 10 years previously to, to cancer, and he was very, very alone at that time and considered suicide, but that took a job in a pub, and uh, the pub landlord and landlady had two young children, and he became a surrogate grandfather to them. He only babysat, he bought them Christmas cards, birthday oh, cards, read to them, did all those sort of grandfather roles. But he said, I, I couldn't say that, even though I did it. I couldn't make it official, because the fear would be I would be seen as a paedophile, and also that they uh, they would stop it. And so that was a latent, a hidden grandfather role there. And that man was a single uh, older man, and he was so lonely, sometimes he went on the bus just so he could hear voices. Oh, that's so sad. It is sad. Luckily, he'd managed to get into a group, a social group, and so things had improved for him. But it's it's indicative of what goes on. And I've spoken to a number of women. Uh, one, uh, I remember saying, my dad uh, went to visit him. And he said, oh, I was playing some football in the park with the lads when I walked through to the shops. And she said, dad, you can't do that. Lads, I mean, seven or eight-year-olds. You can't do that. 
you'll be seen as a paedophile. So it is embedded in society, and that's terrible. Mm. Children can bring a joy, and they bring a lot of social networks with them. The children are, are bridges to school, to health services, to other children, other activities, and grandchildren the same. I'm in my 50s now, and some of my peers are now becoming grandparents, and that's what they talk about. I can't go in with those conversations because I don't have that experience. So there's another loss as you get older. I'm being childless. Uh, a lot of academic work, particularly psychology, post uh, infertility treatment that hasn't worked, usually this after three were, three years, you're assumed to be okay. But it actually carries on throughout life, this difference of being and not being. So where are you now with the research that you're doing? Is there another area of men and the effects on on involuntary childless men that you're looking at i mean you you it looks like you've covered men from 30 to 80 from the study that you've done um and and as you say it it doesn't stop with the different life phases that are inevitable um i mean is there is there an interest from your point of view of the support available we we touched on education um and the 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 importance of education to to young men because there is this assumption that uh, sadly that life will be quite straightforward that you go and you get a job and you have a family and you 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 have a, a partner and you have a family um and and so often that isn't the case and we are of a generation where that so isn't the case um so along with the education, is, is the support something that you would be keen to look at more? I mean, we've talked about how men will talk once they're given the chance, but is there enough in place to get the, to, to give them that platform to talk from your point of view? No, there's, there's, there's not. And part of that is men are starting to speak more to counsellors. There's very little on this subject within counselling or psychotherapy. So it's an area that needs to be developed. Uh, Jodie Day and uh, Kelly De Silva have their areas that they're developing, but it's different for men. I I always uh, say to Jodie, you know, men, I don't think men will do this meeting for a copy, discussing things. They they like to go in, get the information they need and then go out again. And I think that's the uh, element that needs to be brought in, that there's places available where men can get the information. Like bite-sized chunks that they can take away. And yeah, and they can take away or they can stay if they like. But I don't think there's, uh, it's just got to be appreciated that probably not many will stay or if they might come and just keep revisiting every now and then rather than having a long-term involvement. Because Jodie had said that people had asked her whether she would be doing a gateway for men and she had said she felt strongly that it needed to be something led by a man. You just described a whole community of childless men who are quite lonely and it seems such an obvious thing that could help yet it's unlikely to happen isn't it 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 is it is unlikely to happen and there is something around actually how men are seen and how that's embedded into the health service into policy as well so there is a growing masculinity and helping men campaign uh, calm campaign against living miserably is a big thing uh, so there are groups coming forward now about men and actually saying it's not great being a man um, men are three or four times more likely to commit suicide than than women uh, it's quite 
So about 12 men today in the UK will commit suicide. Uh, so I think that's 4,000 a year, something like that. So it's quite a high rate, and men aren't generally happy. But how how much is that reported? Yeah, it's not. So I think also from my from my work, there's a peak time of broodness for men, and certainly I felt this around about 35 years of age. And with the now in demographics, people having children later, men are becoming fathers later as well. So used in the mid to late 30s. And the reason for that is, A, there's a biological reason. Sperm starts to decline in efficiency after 35, slowly, but it does. But also there's a, a social reason, and that is men don't want to be seen as old fathers. So they want to be fathers who are involved, they can play football and do things with their children. And 35 seems to be, actually, this is a pressure point for me now. And a couple of chaps I've spoken to who've become fathers late in their 30s and early 40s said I didn't realize why I was so frustrated why I was so angry something wasn't right until I had children and then it became obvious to me that's what I was missing what's really interesting about that is they couldn't really understand what they were frustrated around so they they were aware that something wasn't right but they didn't associate it with that uh, life course arc that you described of leaving school, getting a job, mm. partner, getting married, having children. Uh, so I find that really interesting. So I think that's an area, the 20 to 50-year-olds, what's happening uh, there for for men? Because presumably if the man then isn't having a family, that frustration that they're feeling, where does that feeling go? It, it continues and it grows and it then moves into depression. Is that what would happen? Would that happen? could be... One of the things, and certainly in my MSc study where I'd had a online survey, the men were more depressed and more angry than the women, the childless men and childless uh, women who wanted to become parents. Um, people seem to be shocked about that. Um, but I think there's, there's something more nuanced there about how women deal with uh, not becoming a mother straight away. But also from the conversations I've had in the fertility side of it, where there's been a male factor, the issue of shame and, and pride and guilt are all going to be, I'm sure, felt if it's voluntary childlessness as well. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I don't think this is really appreciated very much how core it is uh, for a man to, to know he's fertile. Mm. Uh, it, it really is very, very core. And uh, what I'm doing, I'm running my hand down from my sternum down to my belly button. So that's how just sort of to indicate it's really deep down there, yeah. really centered to men. And uh, a diagnosis of infertility, male infertility, is, is can be crushing. And it takes a lot of work. An adaption for for men to who have that diagnosis to readjust and find a path. So, I mean, Robin, I think we could talk for for ages, um, but I, I want to draw this fascinating chat to to a close because I'm putting this podcast out in December, Christmas time, and I was talking with Jodie and Kelly about coping strategies of facing a very festive, family orientated time when you haven't got the family that you had hoped and expected. You said, "What will you be doing this Christmas?" I'll be watching Doctor Who. Okay. That, with, with, with a scarf? 
and fish fingers and custard. Oh, that sounds good. And thought of that. <laughs> um, so a little management type things, uh, taking the dog for a long walk and just break the day down into little bite-sized chunks, really. Um, and contacting people, just saying hello, you know, going through the, the usual things. So don't shut yourself away. Even if you are physically, you can still reach out to people. You can still reach out to it. And I think getting out, particularly if it's not uh, raining or anything like that during daylight hours, that's always good. And doing something that you want to do, some um, exercise. And you can socialise and not do the Christmas thing. You can yeah. just meet up with people for a walk. That sort of thing. And it is a, an opportunity of maybe getting in contact with people that are usually working Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. Actually say, why don't we meet up on Boxing Day and have a walk or have a chat. Skype people. So you, it's uh, doing things. Management would be the thing. What can I do with this time that I actually really want to do? And that might be getting a DVD or going to the cinema or something. Just don't hide away. Robin, thank you. Lovely to chat to you. I'm going to put details of your website on the show notes for this episode because there's lots of information about the different research that you've done. And with regards to the different papers, I know there's like summaries on your website. Are they available in the public domain? Just the summaries because they're uh, dissertations and thesis. There is a paper I think you can download from the, the website as well. There's various blogs up there. And there's lots of links to press articles and stuff that you've spoken in, which are really interesting as well. Yeah, it's, and it's not all academic. I try not to be academic. It's been really interesting. Robin, thank you for your time. Thank you, Natalie. And a, and a happy Christmas. Happy Christmas to you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So to find out all about Robin, just visit the fertilitypodcast.com forward slash Robin. I've made it nice and easy and very Christmas relevant as well. All the details of how you can follow him on Twitter and the different groups, the support groups that he mentioned are there too. Now, um, I've been doing my best to utilise my email list, which if you have been enjoying listening to this podcast and you haven't subscribed, if you go to thefertilitypodcast.com and let me know your email address, then for 2017... I'm sharing much more interesting content and exciting things with you and I'll also remind you when a podcast comes out if you don't get around to subscribing which you can also do via the Fertility Podcast website. I know people drop in I know some people are very loyal and I'm just trying to get the interaction that we have between us a little bit more fluid to do if you're happy to leave me your details it'd be really good to keep in touch I hope this podcast has been of interest I'm going to try and get another one out before the end of 2016 so keep listening do download some episodes if you're spending christmas in an environment that you're concerned about whether you've just found out you need fertility treatment whether you've had failed fertility treatment whether this is your first christmas childless whatever it is please do know that this podcast is one thing you can have in your pocket you can listen to it on your phone and i'm sure you'll know if you're on twitter there's a brilliant community of people who share their woes what's going on with them if you want to give me a follow it's at fertility poddy you can drop me a tweet if somebody says something ridiculous to you over the christmas period and you're just like oh for goodness sake you can get it off your chest on social but don't drink a text all right take care until the next time